0: why don't you do that when I come into the classroom? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what I just did right, but whatever it is, I'll try to keep doing it. Um, uh, it's is a, uh, a joy and an honor for me to be here. This is a great tradition that the college, uh, we had a hiatus for several years. We didn't have an Aquinas lecture. It goes way back the number of years we did. We recommenced this great tradition last year with uh, the eminent Dominican Father Lawrence Dewan, and now we're just keeping going on a great trajectory with our uh, special guest this year. Professor Russell Hittinger has held the William K. Warren Chair of Catholic Studies at the University of Tulsa since 1996, where he is also a research professor in the School of Law. He has taught at Christendom College, Fordham University, Catholic University of America, and has taught as a visiting professor at Princeton, New York University, Charles University in Prague, and the Pontifical University Queen of Apostles in Rome. He is a member of the governing board of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas, of which he has been a member since 2001. In 2009, Pope Benedict XVI appointed Professor Hinger as an ordinarius in the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. He is one of only two lay academics in the world to serve on to Pontifical Academies. His books and articles have appeared in the University of Notre Dame Press, Oxford University Press, Columbia University Press, Fordham University Press, Review of Metaphysics, Review of Politics, and numerous other journals. His most recent book is Thomas Aquinas and the Rule of Law. Earlier books include The First Grace, Rediscovering Natural Law in a Post-Christian Age, and Law and Human Nature, teachers, Teachings of Modern Christianity. His current book, Paper Wars, the Papacy and the Modern State, will be published by Yale University Press next year. He is under contract with Emory to finish a book entitled *Aquinas's Questions on Law, a Primer. He is organizing the 50th anniversary observance of Pope John XXIII's encyclical Pacem in Terrace for the Holy See in Rome. He is also a Benedictine oblate attached to Our Lady of Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma. On a personal note, it was just one year shy of a quarter century ago that across the street, in a very crowded little room, Professor Hittinger was teaching a group of us the philosophy of human nature. And I still remember being utterly thrilled by questions such as who is man? Do I have a body or am I a body? How Professor Hittinger taught that course fundamentally formed how I have taught that course for for 16 years. I also remember in the one summer that Professor Hittinger lived in Front Royal, he invited a number of us younglings to come out to his house and read the Confessions of St. Augustine together picture a young Professor Brown and I there with a few <laughs> a few friends staying late into the night reading this great work. I am very grateful, Professor Hittinger, for instilling in me a love of wisdom and it is a great honor to welcome you back to Christendom College.
1: I'm honored to be here. Uh, I should first say, congratulations to Tim O'Donnell. This is your 20th year, right, Tim? Is this your 20th anniversary as president? Not coming up, yes. Not quite? Okay. And of course, to my student and friend, John Cuddeback, and to seeing so many familiar faces in the audience. Mark McShirley, and I see Doug Flippin, and Robert and Mary Alice Rice. A little bit more gray hair, although I'm not <laughs> one to brag about the color of the hair. Uh, yes, 26 years ago or something it was when I first came here. And for, they made me dean of students. And it was then that I learned in two semesters as dean of students, that I'm fit, neither for administration or pastoral care. (laughs) Uh, But I loved the teaching. And in fact, it was here at Christendom College I learned for the first time to teach Thomas Aquinas. It was my first teaching job in which I had to expound the thought of the common doctor. And quite extraordinary, I had five students as undergraduates at Christendom who did graduate work with me. That's quite story, both at Fordham and at Catholic Youth. I'm very proud of that. Well, shall we begin? Catholic social doctrine began in response to the new anthropological and political creed of man and citizen that swept out of France, 1789, to the rest of Europe, and very quickly to the former colonies of Europe in South America. This creed, liberty, equality, and fraternity, considered the human person in two ways. First, it considered the human person as a being of nature, having natural liberties and rights which had been obscured or broken by the actual historical order. Second, it viewed the human person as a citizen standing equally among other citizens before the state. Fraternity was associated preeminently, if not exclusively, with citizenship. It was Rousseau who taught that membership in the state heals and reconstitutes all of the broken relations of nature and history. Other social memberships, claiming their origins in nature or history or divine revelation were deemed legitimate only insofar as they were either the private choice of individuals or insofar as they were permitted or conceded by the state. Catholic thinkers, both clerical and lay, very quickly after 1789 targeted the ideal of fraternity as the most troubling part of this new creed. Very interesting. You would think it was liberty. It was not. It was fraternity that bothered the Catholic world. Cardinal Monti of Imola, the future Pius VII, who was kidnapped by Napoleon and put in solitary confinement, when he was Archbishop of Imola, put on his letterhead, liberty, equality, and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout the 19th century, Catholic thinkers were eager to identify social domains having a sacred solidarity that's not reducible to citizenship. And during the pontificate of Leo XIII, beginning in 1878, Catholic thinkers began to develop an approach that's used to this very day. I call it a scissors-like approach to the state, limiting and contextualizing citizenship according to societies that are higher and lower than the state, higher and lower social sacralities than the state. It was an ingenious strategy. In effect, the secular state, which publicly claimed to be desacralized, was pinioned by two facets of a sacramental system. And by sacramental here, I don't only mean sacraments in the ordinary sense of the term, like holy orders and marriage, which are instituted by Christ as sacraments of redemption. I also mean by sacrament, whatever makes visible the invisible mysteries of God. In both the restricted and the broader sense of this term, sacraments are always social. There could be no such thing as a private or an invisible sacrament. And regarding these spheres, the church could say to the state, "Noli me tangere, don't touch me. And its deepest pattern, Catholic social doctrine, was a defense of societies against the state's ambition to exercise a monopoly on fraternity. Now, doesn't this suggest that the dignity of the individual human person is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for an an adequate anthropology? Without the human person's complement of social relations and habits, the human being is vulnerable to ideologies and pseudosciences which adopt the principle of methodological individualism. Namely, that social unities and relations among members can be reduced to non-social properties of members or composites thereof. So as I understand it, the Catholic understanding of made unto the image and likeness of God includes two distinct but related ideas. And the rest of my paper is about this. First, the human person as an individual member of a common species. And second, the human person is a member of various social communions. And both of these manifest something of the invisible God. A correct anthropology, therefore, has not one but two tasks to articulate the good of the substantial unity of an individual human being, and second, to articulate how this good is perfected in being a member of a society. This, the question this evening, this, late like this afternoon, is how the second aspect, of being perfected unto the likeness of God, fits with Genesis 1:26. Okay, so off I go. First, let me simply define some terms, which I'm not going to quarrel with because I presuppose them, but I, I have to lay them out for you. Within the Catholic tradition, imago, a copy. Similitudo, a likeness or a perfection. Imitatio, a representation. Assimilatio, a similarity in form. Conformatio, some sort of a constitutional character, are all theological terms of art. And since Leo XIII, magisterial documents rely chiefly upon Thomas Aquinas' understanding of sacral imaging. this afternoon, I'm going to adhere rather closely to the language of the common doctrine. Now, it's commonly taught that imago pertains in an unqualified sense to Christ, who is the eternal and consubstantial image of the Father. In the case of the created human person, the proper description is drawn from scripture. Ad imaginum et similitudinem dei, unto the image and likeness of God. Human beings are not the image. The preposition indicates that the imprinted image in the human person is not absolutely one in being with its source. Thus, imago in man is image only by a kind of analogy, proportion of some kind. And what is it? The proportion signified by imago is not just any created effect, but some kind of likeness in species or likeness in nature, Coena says. But there's a problem. Nothing participates directly by way of species or nature in divinity, except for the divine persons. In the human person, the image or likeness consists in acts of knowing and loving, which are at the root of human nature, and thus from afar, counting as some likeness in species or nature to the divine unity. It's a pattern of knowledge and love, which manifests from afar, the creature, in the creature, some representation of the invisible God. It's also commonly taught that although human reason untutored by faith can detect within itself and in other human persons something divine-like in the operation of knowledge and love, the notion that the created person is an analog of a trinity of divine persons can be grasped only by faith, and by sight, only in glory. As Augustine said, and as Thomas reaffirmed, we see a trinity within ourselves, but we believe a trinity in the Godhead. By adoption and baptism, and through actions informed by faith, hope, and charity, we can grasp something of the community of the divine persons in the created image. But the image of God in the strict Trinitarian sense is in the public domain only by virtue of divine revelation and the response of faith. Saint Irenaeus wrote, in prior ages, it was certainly said that man was made unto the image of God, but it had not appeared since the word was still invisible to whose image man had been made. Moreover, for this reason, the resemblance, the likeness, was lost. But when the word of God became flesh, he confirmed the one and the other, and he showed the image in all of its truth becoming himself, that which was his image, and restored the similitude in a stable manner. So Irenaeus brings us to a final term of art. It's commonly taught in the Catholic tradition that the term similitudo or likeness, can have two meanings. A likeness can be something more general than an image. All creatures have a certain likeness to God as vestiges, that is to say, effects, which reflect something of the first cause. But likeness, or similitudo can also mean the perfection of that which really is an image. And how can we speak of the perfection of an image? By the acquisition or infusion of certain habits. And this perfection, whether by nature or grace, is not just in having the faculties of knowledge, intellect, and will, but in the operaciones, in the actual actions is where the likeness is. In fact, much depends on how this distinction is rendered and applied. But in my paper this afternoon, I'm dealing almost entirely with the second sense of likeness which Aquinas adopts from St. John Damascene That is to say, the moral perfection of an image. So if you were to go to Rome, within Catholic theology, image falls directly under theological anthropology and Christology, while likeness, which is the perfection of the image, falls under moral and sacramental theology. Why under moral and sacramental? Because those are actions which perfect the image. Chiefly actions in conformity to grace, but not excluding perfections derived from action in accord with natural law. Therefore, Catholic social doctrine is situated directly under similitudo, that is, actions which perfect an image. Now, having compressed into a few paragraphs, several books of theology, uh, we can begin to address the question, the disputed question, whether image and likeness can be predicated of a society. And at the outset, we can remove one option. If we mean by image and likeness uh, the accumulation of social relationships, the answer is no. Augustine and and Thomas reject, for example, the idea that Adam is not image until Eve, and neither are images until they have a child. This is what I call a kind of Mormon or sociological notion of the image, Augustine tore after it in several of his works. Okay. And I'm going to point out later, it came up at Vatican II. Now, the image is sacral because the human soul, the form of the body, this substantial unity, is directly created by and ordered to God. The primary relation, therefore, is the created image entirely to its divine exemplar, not just laterally picking up the right set of relations with other human beings. As John Paul II wrote on Adam's solitude in Genesis 2, man is alone. That is to say that through his own humanity, through what he is, he is at the same time set in a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God himself. Society does not confer this primordial dignity. Rather, the face of God, as the psalmist said, the light of thy countenance is signed upon the human person as a substantial unity. No talk about social imago can disturb this anthropological center. Another hurdle to speaking of a society is in the image or likeness of God is perhaps more apparent than real. But it's this. No society has the unity of substance. Augustine famously argued that some sign of the Trinity is found in the distinct but unified mental acts of memory, understanding, and love. But the key to Augustine's argument is that these acts are one in nature. And this can never be said of two or more human persons in a social union. So if we are to speak of a social image, we need some real principle of unity. For where there is no unity, there's nothing to bear the image, not even dimly and from afar. Therefore, we can rule out also, using the term image, of two or more things, or persons, unified only by way of aggregation or composition. A heap of sand, a mob in the piazza, a queue at the subway stop, share a certain propinquity of place and time, but their unity is entirely accidental. It's neither a substantial unity nor a social unity, and therefore, in principle, cannot bear anything like image and likeness. But then that just raises the question, what kind of unity does a society have? So let's start here. Without doubt, it's common sense, common experience. A social unity is nonsubstantial. Members of a society are not stripped of their individual substantial unity by virtue of their union with others. Are social unities, however, real without being substantial? And the answer is yes. Leo XIII and his successors fashioned a solution to this very problem. By the way, the problem's in the public domain of the church by the late 19th century, because the church is defending sacral social unities. Their solution was this. First, they appropriated Aristotle's understanding of the social unity of order and grafted it onto Pseudo-Dionysius' formula, the good is self-diffusive. This step provided a general, or what they call, natural law framework for understanding the sacred iconicity of social orders, at least insofar as the individual image acquires the perfection of similitude by being rightly ordered in a social body. Second, Leo and his successors turned to sacramental theology in order to show that some social orders are not just the perfection of an image, but must directly and properly be called image. Now, out of Aristotle and Aquinas, a unity of order stands between a unity of substance, a man, a bird, a plant, and on the other extreme, a unity of mere aggregation, the heap of sand. And a social unity of order, a marriage, a family, a college, a church. Each individual retains his own identity and operations. Yet the social whole is more than the sum of its parts. It counts as a subject or a person, an agent in its own right. Lawyers and philosophers have traditionally, all the way back to Roman law, designated this kind of an entity a moral person, or a legal person, or even mystical body. Because the term mystical body, apart from revealed theology, simply means A real unity that's not a unity of substance, is a mystical body. John Paul II developed some of his own terminology and described it. He calls social unities interpersonal subjectivities. These and other such terms simply designate the unity of members in a non-substantial body. And these bodies have not only a common end, but also an intrinsic common good. Thomas's term for the intrinsic common good of the social body is communicatio informa. That is a shared form that's not a substance, a shared form of common action. The form is nothing other than the order of the common action. We can call it a regimen or a constitution. Form of order, therefore, distinguishes a society from other kinds of human intersubjectivities. So let me give some examples. A crowd at the shopping mall or an audience at the opera exhibit intersubjectivity. For sure, everyone is aware that each other is aware. Without, however, pursuing a common end through united action. And a fully social intersubjectivity has to also be distinguished from partnership For example, partners pool their resources for the purpose of increasing profit. But such pooling does not necessarily require common action, and its proximate end is a private yield cashed out to each partner, rather than the enjoyment of an indivisible common good. Now, any kind of society will have common pools from very small societies, like a marriage, or larger, like family, or even still larger, like polity, or even church. Everyone has figured out the importance of pooling resources and cooperating to do it, even. Nevertheless, uh, a pool is an aggregation. And its whole purpose is to terminate in private use. The canonists had a brilliant distinction for the difference between a society and a partnership. A partnership in canon law is called universitas rerum. That is, it's an organization of things and only secondarily of persons, whereas an universitas personarum is a union of persons. And if you look at the 1983 code of canon law, a parish is put under both categories. From one point of view, a parish is a unity of buildings, lawns, sprinkler systems, bank accounts. But it's also put under universitas personarum, That is, a parish is even primarily a union of persons. So when the Catholic social magisterium speaks of a true society, it always means two or more persons communicating in a common good that cannot be distributed or cashed out. The common good never exists as a private good. And therefore, someone who exits a marriage or a polity or a church cannot take away his or her private share. And courts, as confused as they are in our era, still understand perfectly well that when it comes to a marriage or divorce, they can divide and distribute the external properties. The husband gets the channel changer. The wife gets the dish towels or something. (laughs) But they can't divide and distribute the marriage itself. It's simply not distributable. And what is not distributable, according to quantity, possesses some kind of real unity. In the case of divorce, therefore, the matrimonial society is not redistributed, it's simply dissolved or annulled. It's no longer a moral person in the eyes of the law. So to give yet one more example, take the example of a queue in front of a credit union. The individuals are parts of the cube. It's a completely accidental or compositional unity. They are partners in the credit union. That is, there's a bit more sociality going on, but they are members of St. Rita's Parish. As John Paul II said, a society is something more than a relation alter, apud a side-by-side intersubjectivity. A society enjoys a common good, a form of reciprocal action, intrinsically valuable to each of its members. It's not pooled and then consumed. It can only be participated. Now, following Thomas's description of such things, Leo XIII and his successors took this Aristotelian Thomistic understanding of a social unity of order and grafted it onto Pseudo-Dionysius. Dionysius held that creatures imitate God in a twofold manner. First, insofar as each creature has its own perfection in the order of substance. And second, insofar as creatures cause good in others. Thus the famous dictum, bonum sui diffusivum est, the good is diffusive of itself. The greater the good, the more it's communicable and shareable. Leo and Pius XI were very keen on this formula. And both of them used it frequently to explain the sacred dignity of social orders. One example will suffice. In the first year of his pontificate, 1878, Leo issued a letter on the problem of socialism. And on the issue of diversity in society, he wrote, for he who created and governs all things in his wise providence appointed that the things which are lowest should attain their ends by those which are intermediate and these again by the highest. Even as in the kingdom of heaven, he has willed that the choirs of angels be distinct, and some subject to others, and also in the church, has instituted various orders and a diversity of offices, so that not all are apostles or doctors or pastors. So also he has appointed that there should be various orders in civil society, differing in dignity, rights, and power, whereby the state, like the church, should be one body consisting of many members, some nobler than others, but all necessary for each other and solicitous of the good." Now here, he's paraphrasing Aquinas. Here's the passage from Aquinas. God wished to produce his works in likeness to himself. The term is similitudo. As far as possible, in order that they might be perfect and that he may be known through them. Hence, that he may be portrayed, in the words represent, in his works not only according to what he is in himself, but also as he acts upon others. He laid down this natural law upon all things, that last things should be reduced and perfected by middle things and middle things by the first, as Dionysius says. Notice that Thomas uses the term natural law explicitly in connection with a twofold representation of God in creatures. What exists in God, simply, is communicated to creatures in a multiform manner, thus a double imitation. First, a diversity of created things, each having a good according to its being. Second, a diversity of created things, imitating God insofar as they cause goodness in others. That is, insofar as they bring into existence through secondary causality, additional modes of participation among themselves and others. So the superabundance of what exists in God simply is in creation most perfectly expressed in a varied manifold. Charity perfects a social principle that's embedded in the creation of angels and men. Namely, one must love the good, not only as it's possessed and owned, but even more as it's poured forth and communicated to many. One is reminded of the Dominican vocation here, to contemplate and to share with others the fruits of contemplation. According to the exhortation of Ephesians 5, 1, be ye imitators of God, an intellective creature loves the good precisely as it's communicated to many, as it's made common. And without a unity of order, we would only have isolated individual beings, each having the good of its own being, to be sure, but altogether portraying nothing more than a quantitative accumulation. So against socialism and liberalism, Leo insisted that the natural law requires the preservation of the individual good and the pouring forth of the good and social relations. Charles de Koenig, for his part, famously pointed out, one cannot love the common good without loving its shareability with others. The fallen angels did not refuse the perfection of that good that was offered to them. They refused its community. And for his part, Aquinas contended that you cannot become a good citizen in either a temporal or a celestial society without a special virtue pertaining to the good precisely as it is shareable. Very succinctly, Thomas said, the creature is like God in unity inasmuch as each creature is one in itself and all together are one by unity of order." So what would be missing from the world if the state reduced all dignities merely to individuals and then, on the other hand, to a single homogeneous social form of citizenship. Leo contended it would be like angels without choirs. By the way, it was incredibly audacious in 1878 for Leo to tackle socialism by going to Dionysius' work on angelic hierarchy. Um, In other words, Uh, recall that in Genesis the individual acts of creation are deemed good one by one. Here's this twofold imitation. But the hexameral acts are crowned by the creation the relation of Adam and Eve. Very good. Something new is brought into existence. Not another substance but a unity of order whereby persons through action cause good in one another. The diffusion of the good in human persons from the beginning is marked by a matrimonial social union, which is a type of the church. Sometimes Leo and Pius XI use the term imago of this relation. But more often, they adhere to Aquinas and call it "similitudo." Remember, the word "similitudo" can mean the perfection of an image. The human person is made unto the image and likeness of God, first with regard the image, his very being, and second, subspecie societatis. In short, social unions are the perfection of the image. They pertain to likeness, presupposing image. But, someone may ask, if the social union is not substantial, doesn't this imply that it's accidental? Of course it implies that it's accidental, but not as one would suppose. We hear much talk today about theology of communion that's relational. For instance, in Caritas and Veritate, uh, Benedict XVI proposes the Catholic social doctrine requires a deeper critical evaluation of the category of relation. The Christian revelation of the unity of the human race presupposes a metaphysical interpretation of the human being in which relationality is an essential element." Here, only a brief clarification will suffice. In the scholastic tradition inherited by the modern popes, the terms substance, relation, and habit are drawn from Thomas, you know, who was reworking Aristotle's categories. Within this scheme, accidents are not unimportant. All of the acquired and infused virtues are accidental under the rubric of habit. One's unity with his or her spouse is accidental under the, the rubric of relation. In all beings other than God, perfection depends upon the individual substance having the right accidents and the right complement of them. So Thomas writes, from the point of view of its substantial goodness, a thing is said to be good in a certain sense. But from its accidental goodness, it is said to be good without qualification. Simpliciter. Nothing achieves goodness absolutely unless it is complete in both its essential and accidental principles. So social unity of order is not a substance, but rather an order in which the right relations and habits exist as accidents, that is to say, as perfections. Now, to return to the main thread of my discussion, the social magisterium in the 19th century contended that by suppressing and homogenizing social relations sweeping them all into citizenship, the modern state was at war with the sacred order of things. Insofar as the state permitted the existence of other social entities, the state was implicitly claiming to be the exemplary cause of the good. Social entities are, in effect, icons or copies of the state. We should not underestimate how widely and deeply Catholic thinkers post-1789, depicted the modern state as a neo-pagan expression of state sovereignty. As for liberalism, the social magisterium typically complained that the second prong of the Dionysian formula was either denied or obscured. That is, the diffusion of the good, which for liberalism is only an aggregate result ensuing upon self-interested action, the hidden hand. That is, beneficence Arises even in the absence of benevolence. Now, liberals may preserve the dignity of the individual in the abstract, but it cannot affirm the perfection of the, the perfection of the image in a social unity. So, if the total totalitarian state is a demonic rival to the divinity, the liberal state is a demonic rival to the diffusion of the good via social use, unions. Now. Pius, uh, Leo and Pius made one more move, which gets us a little bit closer to an answer to the question about image and likeness with regard to social bodies. Leo's Arcanum Divinae, 1880, and, and Pius XI's Casti Canubi, 1930, were the two most important teachings on matrimony since the Council of Trent. Leo and Pius, remember Pius was Leo's student, contended with state laws on civil marriage and divorce, which were driven by the proposition that by nature, marriage is only a partnership for the purpose of reproduction. Actually, today, this sounds like a conservative proposition. Um, Matrimony, on that view, has no fixed, or what Leo called in sculpted form. The form can be whatever the couple decides the form can be. And therefore, form of the union falls entirely under the state's law, either by way of a direct imposition by the state or by way of what the state allows the individuals to choose. And this was a dagger at the throat of Catholicism because in Catholic teaching, the form, the natural form of the social union called matrimony is the fundament of the sacrament. Remove the natural sign of the sacrament, and the the sacrament must go. So citing St. Thomas, Pius XI contended that marriage is not merely a consent to the joining of bodies with a reproductive end in view. Rather, marriage is a consent to the union itself upon which ensue these ends. Marriage is not some free-floating set of ends or purposes but ends brought about through a specific mode of union. Thomas, with his typical succinct mind, wrote, nor is the direct object of consent a husband, but union with a husband on the part of the wife, even as it is union with a wife on the part of the husband. Psychologically, one might desire or choose this man or woman, right? and maybe they've have some mutually agreeable end, such as reproduction or economic security, or sending their kids to Dartmouth. But it is the consent to the union that enables the societal form and deserves to be called marriage. Other intentions can obtain in the absence of matrimony, as we've learned quite well in our time. Indeed, partnerships of various kinds, including partnerships which create a common pool of resources, right, can achieve certain ends without implying consent to a societal union. So reworking these texts, Pius XI writes that while begetting an education of children are first in the order of ends, they are not first in the form that makes matrimony. He called it interior conformatia of husband and wife sent to the union. Uh, In fact, he says, matrimony is a generous surrender of his own person and made to another for the whole span of life. And because that form, natural, under natural law, is instituted by God, Pius asserts that marriage is more sacred than the state. There we get that scissors like moving, going. But it's more sacred for another reason. Matrimony is the natural fundament of the sacrament, the sign of unity of Christ in the church. In the case of marriage, the material sign is already a social union. Correct me if I'm wrong, theologians in the room, it's the only one of the seven sacraments that has a social unity of order as its natural sign. So by grace, the social union is called imago Christi. Pius calls it a living image and an efficacious and mystical image of the whole Christ, head and body. Importantly, Pius XI insists that husband and wife bear the image by reciprocation. It has to be done together. At least under the sacrament, neither the husband nor the wife alone are the image. It's the union itself. And so here, finally, we have at least one instance of a social entity that's not just similitudo or the perfection of an individual image, but one that is itself directly the bearer of the image. So marriage is a social entity that not only fits the Dionysian formula, but enjoys a special status. It can be directly called imago in the order of Christ. The sign of Christ, whose incarnation is not merely an incorporatio, God taking flesh, assuming human nature, which is in the order of substance, but also a concorporatio, the establishment by grace of a social body. And that social body is, in the strict sense of the term, imago Christi, I'll just similitudo. Now, when we move to Vatican II, I'm spinning the reel ahead. We see the opening pages of Lumen Gentium, the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Church. We read that the ecclesial union is like a sacrament. In fact, the idea that, church, that the Church is, in some analogous way, a sacramental image is presented so quickly and abruptly that one might think that it's either a pure assertion or that the argument had already been made. Well, indeed, it had been made in Pius XII's Mystici Corporis. 1943, in the middle of World War II, Pius set out to explain why the primary identity and mission of the church is to be Christ's social body. In fact, I think the most thorough coverage of this notion of unity of order and all of its different modalities is in Mystici Corporis. Pius surveys all of the different kinds of societies. And the church, he says, shares many of these predicates. It's a natural, it's a unity of order that does not destroy its individual members. It enjoys an intrinsic common good, functional organicity and diversity, and so forth. Unlike other societies, however, including marriage, the mystical body of Christ has no identity other than being Christ's social body. In the case of marriage, natural marriage, natural law marriage. We can speak of a natural form that by grace then achieves a higher unity by being habilitated by grace. But for its part, the church has no identity other than being grafted onto and conformed to the head. It has no form other than the actions of its members through the outpouring of charity and the ordering of the Holy Spirit and sacramental actions. Were the church only a social and juridical unity, it would be a social entity of some, like a club or an association, but it would not be the church, even if it still shows up in the yellow pages. Pius writes that by sanctifying grace, we are conformed to the image of the Son of God and renewed according to the image of him who created us. It is the will of Jesus Christ that the whole body of the church, no less than the individual members, should resemble him. Precisely as a society, the church is Christ's social body expressing the most faithful image of Christ. He cites Bellarmine and Gregory of Nyssa, and says, the church is a person. It's called Christ, the whole Christ, head and body. So the surprising thing at Vatican II was not Lumen Gentium, which simply was elucidating this paean encyclical on the church as a social imago Christi. The surprising thing happened in Gaudium et Spes. And here's where I pick up the last part of my story. There the council treats the natural dignity of the individual made unto the image and likeness of God. Early drafts of that section of Gaudium Spes, which becomes section 24, emphasize Genesis 1.17. Male and female, he created them. And rightly so, for traditionally that scripture, Genesis 1.17, was reference for the estate of marriage in the beginning, Matthew 19. Christ's Prayer for the Unity of the Church, John 17, and the Pauline teaching about the great sacrament of Christ in the Church, Ephesians 5. All of these scriptures presuppose that a social union is a sign of the sacred. And while the signs differ according to sacramental economies, creation and redemption, the primordial analog of the human person made unto the image and likeness of God, male and female, is rather important. At the council, however, there was a split in opinion. Some bishops wanted to say that the social relation is by creation, and not just by grace, a fundamental aspect of the imago. Other bishops, for their part, worried that if imago was predicated on a relation, it would imply the heresy that the human person receives imago from a relationship to others, what I call the Mormon theology. This would not only stumble into the ancient heresy condemned by Augustine and Aquinas, it would also mislead and derogate from the dignity of the individual under attack in our times. Remember, 1965, the totalitarian regimes are still in place, so they compromised. And here's how the relevant section of Gaudium et Spes 24 reads in its final form. Indeed, the Lord Jesus, when he prayed to the Father, that all may be one as we are one, opened up vistas closed to human reason, for he implied a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons and the unity of God's sons in truth and charity. This likeness, the term is similituto in the document, reveals that man, who is the only creature on earth which God willed for himself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself," Unquote. So what the Council did is it took from Casti Canubi, Pius XI's description of the matrimonial society as a sincere gift, then spliced it together with Christ's prayer for the church's union in the order of grace. Interestingly, rather than dealing straight on with the question of the natural condition of the Imago in the order of creation, Genesis 1.17, uh, the council moves immediately to the order of grace. It left out Genesis at that point, the full Genesis. And this is why, upon his election in 1978, John Paul made a beeline for Gaudium Spes 24. The first five years of this pontificate are trying to, can we say, correct or make more clear Gaudium Spes 24. And so here's John Paul. The Second Vatican Council, in speaking of the likeness of God, uses extremely significant terms. It refers not only to the divine image and likeness, which every human being possesses, but also and primarily, a certain similarity between the union of divine persons and the union of God's children in truth and love. So in the the lengthy series of Wednesday audiences, the pope contended that Adam's solitude, mythically represented in Genesis 2, confirms the notion that the individual person is the bearer of a a divine-like dignity. Everything in the solitude, he said, must be affirmed as that which constitutes man. In other words, Adamic solitude represents what the tradition meant by substantial unity, perfection that can never be supplanted or canceled out by social relations. The individual is made for God alone. In Genesis, of course, Adamic solitude is resolved by God, who puts Adam into a sleep, from which the original Adam awakes. It's not exactly a shotgun marriage, but it gets very close. to Adam's solitude is addressed not by assimilation into another natural substance, nor by the creation of yet a third natural substance, but by a community of persons. But what's important about John Paul's line of thought are these sentences. If we want to retrieve also from the account of the Yahweh's text, Genesis 2, the concept image of God, we can deduce that man became the image of God not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons, which man and woman form from the very beginning. The function of the image is to mirror the one who is the model, reproducing its own prototype. Man becomes the image of God, not so much in the moment of solitude as in the moment of communion. Now, right away, we should put aside the idea that the pope means chronological succession, any of this. I interpret it largely through the Dionysian formula. Of double imitation. First, the moment of solitude of Adam represents the created image vested in a substantial individual. And second, the gifted in the communion, representing diffusion of the good. The individual is perfected as a member in union with others by performing these acts of giving and receiving, and becomes the image in its perfection. Hence both image and likeness. In fact, if you poke around in the encyclicals and other writings and addresses of JP II, you will see he frequently uh, mentions the Dionysian formula and, and, for T1 lingo, the double subjectivity of the Imago. Now, there's no question, but John Paul II wanted to put something in that Gaudium et Spes had left out which is a real upgrading of the natural law state of the image and likeness. Um, Now, an awkward moment happened. Theologians began to question, is John Paul saying that the image is even primarily in the relation, which would seem to cancel out that privileged moment of the substantial unity? Extremely awkwardly, the question, as a disputed question, was sent to Cardinal Ratzinger while JP two was still alive. You know, he's 500 yards away. Um, So it went to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And Cardinal Ratzinger discreetly gathered his International Theological Commission and said, figure this out. Uh, And that commission produced a document in English called Communion and Stewardship, Human Persons Created in the Image of God. And they go back to Genesis. God placed the first human beings in relation to one another, each with a partner of the other sex. According to this conception, man is not an isolated individual, but a person, essentially relational being. The fundamentally relational character of the Imago Dei constitutes its ontological structure. Now, I'm almost over. I don't like essentially relational. There can be a perfectly acceptable meaning to it. That is the English of the original text. I would prefer that this point be expressed in Thomas's terms. The human being is called good absolutely, simplicitary, when he has a proper complement of habits and relations. But don't push the habits and relations. Don't conflate them back into the essence or the substance. You know, if they can be conflated back into the essence or substance, we wouldn't even need the habits and relations. We'd already have them. You get out of bed in the morning with them, just like you're being. Um, I think Thomas's terminology permits us to clearly distinguish between the created substance and its accidental perfections, which is to say the image and the likeness, whether by nature or grace. That's the one qualification. After that, the International Theological Commission document seems to me picture perfect. Quote, the created image affirmed by the Old Testament is, according to the New Testament, to be completed in the Imago Christi. In the New Testament, the development of this theme two distinct developments emerge. The Christological and Trinitarian character of the Imago Dei and the role of sacramental mediation in the formation of Imago Christi. They cite the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The vocation of humanity is to show forth the image of God and to be transformed into the image of the Father's only Son. An adequate anthropology, therefore, must include without confusion or reduction These two, the excellence of being an individual human person and the excellence of social unions. These are, so to speak, the preambles of the theology of the divine image. And they have two aspects. One is the natural law argument under the pseudo Dionysian formula. Substantial unity manifests something of the the invisible God. And diffusion of the good manifests another. That is, similitudo is social relationships and virtues and relations. Image is unity of substance. And that allows us to take the Christological view, finally. Christ becomes incarnate. That's the order of substance. And he not only becomes incarnate and takes on human nature, there's the process of concorporatio. The first is affiliation, in the order of substance. The second is affiliation. It's called church. And it seems to me these distinctions, I know there's more than one here, are best kept in order and explained by setting aside essentially relational <laughs> and just talking about the distinction between the order of substance and its perfections. It applies both to the natural law part of the argument and to the fully theological part of the argument about the nature of Christ in the church. And so the modern popes, it seems to me, by and large, have shown the suppleness and reliability of Thomas's distinctions on this matter. Thank you. weighed in any further on this. In two encyclicals, he has repeated this essentially relational. And uh, he has not explained further exactly what he means by that. Now, as I say, by the way, I'm a good churchman. I am going to interpret things consistently and I'm not going to make trouble where none exists. I think there has generally been a tendency within the Ressourcement movement of theology and philosophy to soften and somewhat blur Christian Aristotelianism on the importance of substance. Because there was fear, it goes back into the 30s and the 40s, long before Vatican II, that Christian Aristotelianism uh, actually is not a remedy for, but only deepens the problem of modern individualism. But I think that they're mistaken on that. Because what Christian Aristotelianism does, it shows the importance of the other categories. In other words, you really understand the importance of habit in relation third and fourth categories, when you understand that possessing your being, being able to get out of bed in the morning and you're still substantially a human being, is quite distant from all of the things you need to be in order to be a good human being. So actually, properly interpreted Christian Aristotelianism allows relation to actually have some impact. Now consider this as a, at least the beginning of an argument whatever we predicate of the nature of a thing is there spontaneously. If relation is pushed back into the substance, by the way, there's other meanings of relation, but the the way they're being meant here, then you would have it just by virtue of having your being. You'd have habits. In fact, you wouldn't need to have them. You already have them. And what are we to do with acquired and infused virtues at that point? You know, So we, we don't want to make that move. So rather than softening and blurring the notion of the importance of individual substance, we should emphasize it because once we do, we see the importance of relation. And this is right in Christology. Jesus is first the eternally begotten Son of the Father. It's filiation. It's not a bunch of lateral social relations. It's filiation. That's in the order of substance as is incarnation. The, that Son becoming man. Okay. We have to emphasize that in Christology. But that allows us then to give proper weight and emphasis to the fact that Jesus didn't just accept the order of substance. Right. He sends the Holy Spirit and creates a body, diffusion of the good. So I think this is, well, this is still a disputed issue. It should be, but it is. And I'm still pretty convinced that the Christian Aristotelian use of those categories is the best. Gets, not only does it get the job done and makes the tradition consistent, with itself. But that relation turns out to be having much more importance if you take that route. I didn't answer everything about Benedict, but.
0: Professor McGuire. Thanks. I have a question. Um, early in the talk, you were drawing a distinction between partnerships and societies. Yes. And to help elucidate that distinction, um, you, you made a distinction between goods and ends. Uh, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. um, the distinction as it was taken from Aristotle by Thomas and then by the Thomas over centuries was this, that a society that, that has bonum commune has two goods. It has an extrinsic end the army wants victory. The crew team wants to win the race. But it also has an intrinsic common good, which is the shared form of its action. Now, this is why I'm trying to further elucidate the distinction. A crew team fails to win the race. Is it still a crew team? OK, beginning you get it. The end, the extrinsic end, Really depends in some ways on the intrinsic one. A married couple, through no follow ups on, simply doesn't have children. Are they still married? Okay. Uh, A faculty doesn't manage to turn out students who uh, go to Oxford. Still a faculty? Okay. Whereas in a partnership, it's reversed in a partnership, if the extrinsic end is not achieved, that that partnership's gonna go pretty quickly. In other words, a for-profit corporation that makes no profits? Only the government can get away with that. (laughs) So, what marks off a society having bonum commune is an indivisible common good, a shared form of action that can never be cashed out. Now, it may achieve or might not achieve its extrinsic end. This is why we have to say that we shouldn't begin with the ends of marriage. And I think demonstration of that, besides being back in these pontifical encyclicals on the nature of marriage, where they're really clear about this, is in our own time. Strike the sacramental end, as one of the three finis of marriage. Let's look at its form, what the canonists call the essentiales, which is common form. One man and one woman uh, through a one-flesh act of unity unto perpetuity. We know in our own time that you can dump the intrinsic shared form And people claim they're quite ready to have the ends. But they don't have them matrimonially. That's the point. And therefore, when we defend, when Christians defend the ends of marriage, you've got to be very careful. Because those things can be detached. So it can become like a partnership. Uh, we, We will merge exercise machines. Uh, TIA, crap accounts, and we're going to agree to have a child Not necessarily marriage. That form. Okay. So that's why I say these, these distinctions are somewhat important, because they, they curl back on us in argument all, the, all of the time. But I will admit this. In the law, at least in Anglo-American law, actually it's in Roman law, to distinguish where a partnership begins and ends and a society begins and ends can be foggy because partnerships can lead to social unions. It happens, okay? Partners become friends. And by the same token, social unions can dissolve into partnerships, go to almost any American suburban household. Right? It's a dormitory with computer hookups, wireless. So for purposes of law, trying to get the exact place a society and a partnership overlap or diverge is tricky business. It's very tricky business. But traditionally in law, we've always recognized marriage, not as partnership, but as marriage. and. That one is going, going, gone, (laughs) legally, and and in our culture. It's not reserved for partnership. In fact, the beginning of the same sex issue in American courts was in Hawaii, in which the Hawaiian Supreme Court just directly asserted marriage is a partnership. That is, it's an universitas rerum, it's the bringing together of resources. My genes and your genes, exercise machines, whatever. And the famous Massachusetts Supreme Court decision, the Goodrich case, explicitly says it's a partnership blessed by the state, sanctioned by the state, because this kind of partnership brings about socially useful ends, among which they mention stability. Uh, It saves the state from paying any more money For succoring the old and the young, it's a good utilitarian reason. Uh, Stability of property, and then the most interesting of them all: it provides uh, epidemiological data. So, if people are called married, they typically have an address, and if diseases should break out, we know where to find them. Okay, so. Yeah, at law, these things are, you know, but the the distinctions are important. Um,
0: Yeah, I was wondering
1: if you could uh, discuss a little bit about
0: what are the causes or what kinds of things tend to make things that should be societies
1: into partnerships and things that should be partnerships or are partnerships into societies? Well, by the way, partnerships are not bad. But here's what's distinctive of a partnership. Interesting, in Latin, I think the term here is socius. A partnership is someone's an associate. That is, we, we have inner subjectivity. We cooperate to some extent. But it's for the purpose of private yield. That doesn't mean we're selfish. It just means if well, I put into TIAE cref every month with millions of other school teachers, and we all have the interest in that, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and none of us will begrudge the next for cashing out. Okay, so Therefore, the redistribution or the distribution from the common stock is destined for me and for you and for the next partner and for the next partner we have reason to cooperate in the common pool, but the destiny of it is private yield. Same thing with the municipal water system. It comes out of my tap into my glass, and I drink it. Okay. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not a society. A society has a common good, which is indivisible. I mean, we used to say this in the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Something indivisible. That is, even when, now that I'm back in my home state of Virginia, even when the, Richmond, the legislature in Richmond voted for the Articles of Secession in the spring of 1861, they didn't think they were breaking the United States with them. The United States was not being cashed out. Actually, they had to form another bonum comune. You can't take a bonum comune in quantitatively. You can form a different one, but you can't keep a bonum de by dividing it. And so in our society, one of the reasons of reverting to partnership in discussing these things, number one, because we are a commercial society, in which private yield is regarded as the default position we understand perfectly well, even if we haven't philosophized about it, that insofar as you're a partner, you have an escape hatch. Well, not only an escape hatch, the ultimate destination is, is your own private yield. And we are content to emphasize the sociality of cooperation. That seems like quite enough similitudo for us is at least to cooperate to bring about this stuff, this private yield. And we tend to see universities that way. I'll give you one example. (coughs) My university, University of Tulsa, nominally Presbyterian, Uh, we we had a president hmm, 10 plus years ago. By the way, a fine man, a good Christian man. But he was former CFO of Southwest Airlines, chief financial officer. And he decided upon his incumbency to redesign the school seal. You know, the veritas and all of this kind of stuff. And rather than being... He made it into a triangle. In the center of the triangle was a hand holding a torch that said excellence, around which it said this. You have to believe me. In everything we say and do, we strive to attain. The highest level of customer satisfaction. (laughs) And... Uh, well, so much. Now, I'm proud of my fellow faculty members who were just outraged. And the president was very disappointed and hurt by our response to the new, which puts us in commercial relations. I mean, we're partners, it's partnerships. My name is Russ. Can I help you understand Aquinas? <laughs> so, the president backed off, and to this day, This is what obtains at the University of Tulsa. All non-faculty employees, upon being hired, have to go to a weekend retreat to learn customer satisfaction. And they have posted over their desks and computers that triangle. We strive to it. But no faculty has to. So here's the split. The employees that are not faculty are in a commercial partnership, faculty still at least pretend to be in a society at us. Okay. That. I know there's a
0: number of more questions. I'm going to have to fill, um, adjourn and invite anyone to ask more questions to stay. We are very grateful. Thank
1: you very yes, much. Yes,